Okay, so the topic that we're going to address today is the, the topic of the refugee crisis and what is the church's response and what does that look like for us? This is a pertinent issue in this time, in this season of the world, not just because of what's happening globally, but because of what's happening here locally. For the past five years or so, there have been a number of people who've been praying that that refugee resettlement would, would uh, start happening in the East Valley as well as North Phoenix. And we've been praying about it for about five years because it looks like there are a lot of opportunities to, to, for, for meaningful work and for housing and those sorts of things. And about um, this, earlier this spring, we, uh, we heard news that World Relief the only evangelical organization that works directly with the State Department to resettle refugees, is moving to town and setting up shop and is going to be doing resettlement um, in, in, on this side of town as well. And so it's a very exciting time, and we thought that because of the weight of what's happening in the world and because of the weight of what's happening uh, with what God seems to be doing here in the city, that it would be important that we have a conversation about what does it look like for the church to engage this issue. So uh, just to give you a snapshot of what to expect today, um, since we have a, a lot of pastors and those sorts of things in the, in the room, we're getting a, away from just having a speaker, and we're doing more interview style. Um, but also something we want to do is we know that there are a lot of people in this room who want to get to know each other and spend time with each other and learn from one another. So we're, we want to emphasize uh, opportunities to have rich table discussion as well. So to start off with that, to start off with the discussion around your table, I want to throw out a scenario to you to discuss around the table. And here it is. Um, it's kind of a crazy hypothetical, but bear with me. Imagine that Canada runs out of maple syrup for some reason. Like, you know how much Canada loves maple syrup. And they run out of maple syrup, and then they discover there is a hidden source of maple syrup in the world. It's here in the United States. So, you know, unexpectedly, they've got a strong army of Mounties that comes into the country and basically takes over. It's chaos. It's chaos for, uh, it's, it's to such a degree that you can't work. It's dangerous for your family. Uh, the, there's um, the, the basic services of power and water uh, aren't available to you. And you realize very quickly that the only thing you can really do for your survival is to leave today, to pack up a backpack, whatever you can fit in the backpack, and walk for two days to the border of Mexico, hoping that once you get to Mexico, you'll be able to find refuge there. Now imagine that you are with your family and your loved ones, and your feet are sore, and you're getting closer and closer to the border, and you see that you're going to come upon a place where, where you can uh, uh, eventually cross, and you're going to start a new life, hopefully, in Mexico. Here's the question I want you to discuss. What would you hope would be waiting for you on the other side of the border? What would you hope the church would be like on the other side of the border? What opportunities would you hope would be there? What policies would you hope would be there? For you and your family and your loved ones, what would you hope would be there waiting for you 
as you cross the border. Go ahead and discuss that around your tables, and then I'll be back to lead us in a moment. So to help us imagine if I've got an expert, a panel, a panel of experts of people who live this out and who work in this field who we want to ask some questions to. So if you go ahead and give them a hand as they come up. All right, we've got two of you are going to have to share a mic. Um, let's go ahead and start out this way. If you guys can just give us a brief introduction to who you are and what is your connection to this issue. Uh, yeah, sure. My name is Mark. I'm a scholar and a pastor, a pastor in, in Vancouver, and I'm an Aussie, so I can snap a crocodile's neck with two fingers. <laughs> And uh, in Vancouver, there's no crocodiles, so I can't prove it to my friends in Vancouver, but I tell them that I can, and they know it. And so in Vancouver, we're in an urban setting. We passed uh, a church of young people, justice-seeking people, and uh, Christ-loving people, and we, we're seeking to love our neighbourhood, and we've birthed uh, an organisation called Kinbrace who, that serves uh, asylum seekers, uh, refugees uh, who are coming to Canada. And so we, we learn a lot... Um, from the work of Kim Brace, and as a scholar, I'm a professor at the Missional Training Centre, which is here in Phoenix, mm -hmm. and is re closely related to the Surge Network, mm -hmm. and uh, it's, um, it's, it's an incredible uh, it's place of theological education, especially uh, for pastors, um, immersing in the biblical story and the missional arc uh, of scripture. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of people here have been through MTC as well. Yeah, um, so my name is Matthew Sorens. I am, live outside of Chicago in Aurora, Illinois. Uh, I work for an organization called World Relief, which is um, we're the humanitarian arm of the National Association of Evangelicals. We, our mission at World Relief is to empower local churches to serve the vulnerable. So we do that in various parts of the world. Um, but my work is really focused here on our work within the United States, where we're one of nine agencies nationally, as you said, who are authorized by the State Department to resettle refugees. And we serve other immigrants as well. Um, and one of the things that makes us a little bit distinct, perhaps, from some of the other resettlement agencies is our mission isn't just to serve and integrate refugees well, though we absolutely want to do that. It's to empower the local church to serve the vulnerable. So we work really closely with local churches. My job within World Relief is really to help our staff on the ground in our 27, soon-to-be 28 offices here in Phoenix, to answer the questions that churches are asking related to these topics of refugees and immigration. Um, I'm, as you all are aware, this is a controversial issue right now. Um, it's in the headlines, it's about every day. And what that means is there's some people who come at this from a, primarily from a perspective of compassion. A lot of other people who come at this primarily, I think, driven by some fear. There's a lot of misinformation. One thing we found is there's not necessarily a lot of good biblical reflection on this mm. topic. So a lot of what we've tried to do is say, let's put, away, put aside the politics, at least temporarily, mm. and say, how do we think about this topic, first and foremost, as followers of Jesus, from mm. a missional perspective, from a biblical perspective. So that's my, a big part of my job is doing that. That's great. Hey, everybody. I'm Adam Estel um, from nearby Peoria, and it's great to be here with many friends. Honored to, to have a chance to speak at, um, at this lunch. And just really honored to be up here with um, colleagues that are doing tremendous work. Um, my main role these days is with the National Immigration Forum. I'm the field director there. And I help to run the Evangelical Immigration Table. There's a green uh, flyer on your table with more information about the work that we do. Kind of what Matt was saying, building a biblical perspective on uh, how we treat immigrants and what that should mean for how we think about immigration in general. 
Um, I also um, am privileged to lead my church's efforts with uh, the Islamic Community Center as a member of Orangewood Nazarene Church, as Jim was mentioning earlier. Um, And not to rehash the story, but that day in May when many of you were there um, and so supportive and helpful um, was really a a tremendous opportunity for us as a a body of Christ here in Phoenix to show, as Jim was mentioning, the rest of the world what we really stand for um, as opposed to the reputation that our state has. Um, Previous to my my work at the National Immigration Forum, I had the privilege of working at Neighborhood Ministries uh, here in Phoenix, which many of you are familiar with helping to run their unaccompanied immigrant uh, children program. Um, and so those are the refugees that I have the, the closest relationship with um, from ages 3 to 12 who have crossed our border from Central America. And then additionally, I've, I've had the privilege of working with my church in legal services, which is something that as we talk about how churches can get involved in, in welcoming um, immigrants and refugees is a great need in our city. And in fact, the first person that I had the privilege of helping to uh, get her citizenship was a refugee from Syria. So that was really a special experience for me. Um, so I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Well, to get us started, I thought it would be good if we just laid the groundwork with some definitions and, and just statistics and stuff like that. So rapid fire round. Uh, I'm giving this to you, Matthew, just to give you questions. And, uh, and if you can just give us a short answer on these um, who are refugees? Like, what's the definition? Yeah, so under both U.S. law and international law, a refugee is someone who has fled their country of origin because of persecution or a well-founded fear of persecution that specifically has to be related to their race, their religion, their political opinion, their national origin, or their social group. Mm. Um, so that's a very precise legal definition. There's lots of vulnerable people who don't quite meet that definition or haven't been found to meet that definition. But just with that legal definition, the United Nations estimates that there's about 21.3 million refugees in the world today. 21.3 million in the world. Which is higher than anyone's ever counted since anyone's been tracking this sort of information. Wow. Um, and, and how many in the United States? So the U.S. government, under the Refugee Act of 1980, uh, the number of refugees admitted to the U.S. is determined by the president on an annual basis. Mm. So last year it was 70,000. And that's been a rel- the, approximately the number that's been for the last several years. This year, it's actually going up to 85,000. Um, so that's, in some ways, seems like a big number. It's the most bit of any country in terms of res- intentionally receiving resettled refugees. Obviously, Europe receives people who are seeking asylum who they didn't necessarily ask for mm-hmm. um, in much larger numbers, as do many other neighboring countries to, to situations of conflict. But um, it's, the 70,000 that the U.S. received last year was less than one half of 1% of the world's refugees. Mm. So people tend to, I think as Americans, we have this tendency of thinking every situation in the world is about us. Yeah. It's mostly not. Um, it's mostly about other parts of the world that are receiving the vast majority of people fleeing their homes. But those 70,000 people are 70,000 individuals made in the image of God and our neighbors whom we're called to love. And it's, we believe it's a great opportunity to welcome them. Yeah. And one thing that's an interesting statistic is that Arizona is, last year was the resettled the fourth highest number of refugees of all states, uh, which I think that's a good thing about our state. I yeah. like that. Uh, Adam, do you know what the statistics are of how many refugees are in the state currently? I do not. You do not? I, Next question. Yep. Yeah, okay. I'm going to go About 3,000 a year. Y- yeah, there you go. In the Phoenix, in the Phoenix area. area. Some in Tucson, yeah. So I, I heard something. I'm not even going to attempt it. It would be a made-up statistic. <laughs> um, 
or or what I heard from a taxi driver who heard it from something else. <laughs> uh, so let me ask you this. I'm going to kind of switch over to, um, to Mark. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question. Um, so Adam mentioned the importance of biblically reflecting on this. So I'm going to ask you a question about preaching a little bit later. But if you can just give us a, a sense of the, the of when we open up our Bibles, what should we be seeing and how should that be compelling us to engage this issue? There's a few different lenses into it that we can take. I think one is to, is to discern the narrative arc of Scripture and what God is busy doing in the world. And as a biblical ethicist, I'm an, I'm an Old Testament scholar, the theme of kinship is one of those key trajectories, those key threads that weaves throughout Scripture. So we all, I know that you all know in Genesis chapter 3 there is the fall and God's good creation is corrupted by human sin. And you remember, of course, in Genesis chapter 4 that, that I mean, we see this separation of relationship between humankind as Adam and Eve. Adam blames Eve. And then we come to chapter 4 and it's fratricide. Uh, brother kills brother. And, and it's there to show the way that human rebellion against God goes hand in hand with this utter fr- fracturing of the good relationships between humanity. And, and this uh, is the story between Genesis 4 and Genesis uh, 11, this fracturing of human relationship, including Genesis chapter 6 preceding the flood. You will remember where the wickedness of humankind escalates. And what God is doing in calling Israel... Uh, ancient Israel, the Old Testament people of God, is his, here they are at Sinai receiving the law. And what biblical law does is reshaping human society and human relationships as kindred. And so he says, Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 4, for example, there should be no poor among you. And he institutes these, these beautiful feasts, say Deuteronomy 16, 1 to 17, these feasts where we feast before the Lord our God with the orphan, the widow, and the alien, the refugee, the stranger. And here we're becoming family again before in the presence of God. Uh, there, there is laws uh, to, especially to do with... These laws are shaping community so that everyone among God's people can thrive, especially the most vulnerable. And that's what the law given at Sinai is doing. It's shaping a community in contradistinction as a counter story to Egypt's enslavement and oppression. There would be no pharaohs in Egypt, no oppressors, no accumulators. We're being reshaped as family. So the trajectory that we're tracing through the biblical story is that the way God is, is reshaping humanity, his people, as kindred. And so we get to the Gospels. and I mean, one lens into it is Jesus' fellowship meals. New Testament scholars have often said that Jesus literally ate his way through the Gospels. Have you heard that? And we know, too, that, that Jesus ate... With all the wrong people. This man befriends sinners and eats with them. He is charged. Now, you know what meals meant in the first century and in ancient times. Meals is where we're knit together as family. We eat with people we're becoming kin with. And the table in the first century, in both Jewish culture and Greco-Roman culture, was the place where boundaries were established and maintained according to who was at the table and where they sat or if they were outside the house and watching or not even allowed outside the house. And Jesus had the reputation for becoming kindred with the, the outcasts, 
the people on the margins who no one else would become kin with at table. And, you know, we think we read Luke's gospel, especially in these feasts, and we think, wow, you know, this, this has never been done before. This is, look, but, but, you know, the interesting thing is Jesus didn't invent this in terms of the biblical story. Jesus was doing what Israel was always supposed to do. Israel was being the true Israel. Jesus was being the true Israel. And in doing that, in fact, he was doing what humanity was always supposed to do. Because if Israel was a recovery of humanity, and Jesus is a recovery of Israel, it's a recovery of humanity. And in his resurrection, he, he has secured for all of the creation. Jesus' resurrection is the beginnings of this world renewed. And he sends the Spirit in order to empower people to live as a sign, an advertisement, a sign to his loving, restoring rule. And so the church is invited to live as a sign to the good things that God is busy doing in the world. And one of those things is, is that all things reconciled, including humankind reconciled with one another uh, as kindred. So I think that's a very help, helpful trajectory to think through the, the other or the stranger, or the refugee, or even uh, the undocumented immigrant uh, here in the U.S. We need to understand as Christians that our, our brother and sister is our fellow human being. Or to be sure, our brother, sister, our sister, brother, is our, uh, is our sister, brother in Christ as well. But in the end, the church is gathered as a sign to what God wants to do for all of the world, for all of humanity. You, you know, I was struck a few years ago just watching... Um, a talk show, uh, and an African-American was, was referring to his African-American uh, co-spokesperson as brother. And I, I'm an Australian, so, uh, the, you know, uh, we, don't, we don't have African-American friends in the Australian community. And, and I, I was thinking, wow, you know, what, a, what an affectionate way to, to, express, to express love for someone, brother, sister, you know. And then uh, this African-American uh, scholar started to refer to the white host as brother. And I thought, well, that's surprising. He, could have, he would have referred to me as brother too. And I realized at the heart of that African-American tradition of referring to one another as family is the Judeo-Christian heritage. It's the biblical story. It, it's actually uh, right in line with the things that God is doing in the world, re-knitting us as kin. This is the stuff that's got to shape our attitude towards refugees and also towards, towards undocumented immigrants. Absolutely. Matthew, would you add anything to that? He just gave the whole biblical theology of yeah. loving refugees. Did he miss anything? <laughs> I mean, that is a fantastic sort of narrative way to look at this. And I think one of the things we've been a little bit troubled by, we actually commissioned a poll through LifeWay Research of American evangelicals a year and a half ago. 12% of American evangelicals said they think about issues of immigration primarily from a biblical perspective. That's a pretty scandalously low percentage of people who would claim the scriptures are our authority for Every issue. And there's just so much there. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sorry. I'm sure Mark could go on for an hour with the biblical themes related to Can refugees. I do that? <laughs> I mean, there's just so much from the Old Testament into the New, the theme of hospitality, which is literally, it's philoxenia, the love of strangers. It's not having your friends over for lunch, which is how we talk about hospitality in American English. Um, there's so much there. And then, I mean, you can look at the, what it means to love our neighbor and we don't get to define our neighbor narrowly as someone who lives next to us, who looks like us and believes like us and talks like us, because that's not who the, the good Samaritan was on, to the Jewish person beat up on the side of the road. So there's just a ton of biblical content there. And our heart is really, can we make sure we're grounding our response to this issue in what the scriptures say, in that biblical story, not just in a political narrative on one side or the other. That's great. The 
12% of people are shaping their ethics in the situation based on the preaching they hear in the church. Evangelicals. Self-described evangelicals. And even that, that's with the halo effect. So researchers will tell you, when you take one of these surveys, people have a tendency to give the right answer. And if you're an evangelical Christian and the Bible's a choice, that's probably the box you're supposed to check. You know, like, that's what you're drawn to as, of course, the Bible is the most important. But even if there's some embellishment there, 12% said the Bible is what's most influencing my, my thinking on this. The yeah. Bible, the local church, the views of national Christian leaders combined were cited less often than the media. Wow. So with that said, um, I think that begs an important question. Um, um, you know, when I first read that statistic in, in your book, I, I originally thought, like, my first flinch as a pastor, I was like, yeah, those lame congregants, they don't listen to anything you say. <laughs> but then I was thinking... Actually, we just never preach about it, so that's not something that they would make that connection about. Well, we actually we asked yeah. that question, too. Yeah. And again, we're asking people in the congregation, so it could be their faulty memory. Yeah. But 21% said they've ever been challenged by their local church to reach yeah. out to the immigrants in their community. Had 21, cents, 21% said they'd ever had been challenged. Yeah. So four or five basically say they've never heard that message. Yeah. Again, I shared that once in a church where people kind of like nodded and the senior pastor was like, I preached on this two years ago and you all forgot about it. So maybe it's selective memory. Uh, but. So, so I want to ask a question to you guys to have another table discussion before we bring some questions back to them. Um, and, and I'm going to paint another scenario. I like these scenarios, but um, this one's kind of heavy and kind of sad, but I have noticed lately that there has been an increase of violence towards Muslims, towards immigrants, especially uh, towards refugees and uh, the imam who was shot in New York um, this last, last week, as a matter of fact. Uh, Adam and I, Adam told me about something that was happening in Tempe, and we connected with a guy. We went over to his house. He's a Muslim guy. He actually worked with the U.S. military in Iraq and then came here. And his neighbors had been pointing the gun at him, saying, we're going to kill you, Arab. We're watching you. Calling the police, saying that we have a terrorist living next door to us. These sorts of things. Now imagine that that continued to increase in the culture. Now imagine that people in your congregations started to resonate with that. So what I want you to discuss is what would you do? How would you shape your preaching and your teaching to address that issue and to help shape people's perception on these things? So discuss that around the tables and I'll bring us back in a moment. Okay, let's go ahead and bring our discussion to a close. Um, I'd love to hear from two people. Just holler out. What would you say? Not don't give the sermon, but kind of go what you would talk about. Tom, I want to hear from you. That's great. And and so, Mark, uh, if you wouldn't mind, uh, as we have this question on our mind, telling us about some resources. So, Mark is a. Uh, one of his areas of focus is uh, Old Testament ethics and biblical ethics. And would you give us some, uh, some advice on like, what resources we should go to as we were going to hash this out? Sure. So for preachers, so you might want to grab a pen and I'll give you some books. I'm going to fly them by pretty fast. So the first area that you need to go deep in, and I think a lot of you already have, is just understanding the narrative arc of the biblical story, the missional arc of the biblical story. Some of you will have read these books already. So I'll recommend um, books by 
three books by Mike Goheen. Mm-hmm. A couple of them are co-authored by Craig Bartholomew and Mike is uh, Heads Up, the MTC, the Missional Training Centre in Tempe, Phoenix. So the drama of scripture would be the first one. Uh, This is Goheen and Bartholomew. Who's read that? Wow, that's extra credit. (laughs) Right on the table, right there. Linda's got the book right there. Come join us on stage. Right, and at the crossroads by the same altars. um, Goheen's Light to the Nation to... Is going to be really good. So what we're doing is we're understanding the missional arc of Scripture. This is critical. We need our meta narrative to be right, and then secondly, to get to to start to learn about biblical ethics. So here's three books on the Old Testament. Chris Wright, who also teaches at the Missional Training Center in Phoenix, has some excellent scholars. Uh, Old Old Testament ethics and the people of God. Who has that on their shelf? Old Testament ethics and the people of God. Uh, on the Gospels, Craig Blomberg's book. Uh, a New Testament scholar, neither poverty nor riches, is very good on ethics in the Gospels. Craig, so it's Blomberg's, neither poverty nor riches. On Paul, poverty and Paul, uh, is Richard Longenecker's book that came out about three years ago. Richard Longenecker. Now, I can't quite remember the title, Richard, but someone will have it within 10 seconds from their iPhone. But something like poverty and Paul, and you will get it. Uh, so these are resources for biblical ethics. Regarding refugee issues, you can check out my academia site, and download some articles, mm-hmm. uh, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so this is this. I do think, just going with Tom's very good comments, what's critical for preachers, even just as important as what, as what you read and how you're understanding the biblical story, is how you're living. And so the first step that is even prior to getting together a group of people with energy on these issues in your church is to live differently. You've got to, and, the, and a key question is, who do you have around your dinner table, right? Who do you have? And now you think about this honestly now in the last month. Who has been sitting around your dinner table? Is it people like you? Is it people middle class with kids the same age as your kids or your leaders or co-pastors? Or is it the people who Christ ate with? Who are you becoming kin with? And, and therefore, how are you being shaped, Right? So, so it's got to start with that, Jim. It's got to start with that. And if you start living differently and constr- shaping your relationships differently, your church will follow. That's good. So, Adam, I want to ask you. Um, yeah. Yeah, the first third of it is um, it's edited by Michael Goheen. It's called A Missional a Reading. Sorry, the title's just changed. Uh, Reading the Bible Missionally. Um, it's a wonderful book. My chapter's on. Thanks, Tom. So it deals with the stranger in that. It's one of the chapters. It'll be released in the next month, that book, Reading the Bible Missionally by Goheen. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate that. Also, you should be looking forward to, um, I think Mark on Old Testament ethics is like one of my favorite human beings, especially because I love him and he lives it. And he quotes Wendell Berry a lot, who I really like. Um, but he's going to be uh, doing a little video with a piano explaining biblical Old Testament ethics and law with a piano. So that'll be, look forward to that. We'll post it on the, the Surge uh, blog. Um, Adam, question for you. All right, so we've talked about preaching. Now, what, what would it look like for a church to engage these issues well? Like what tangible things would they be doing? Well, um, 
I think there's a, a wide variety of, of actions and activities that churches can take um, all across uh, the spectrum. Everything from, you know, simply um, engaging the folks in your community and wanting to be a good neighbor. That's how our church got involved with the Islamic Center down the street. A few of us went over and we said, you're right down the street. We don't know you. We should know you. We want to be good neighbors. And that started this long road of eight years of relationships together where we've served the community. Um, I think, so getting to know uh, the other in your neighborhood is a good way to do it. I think once you get to know people and have relationships, um, it becomes more and more difficult to demonize people in, in that category of otherness. Um, so that, that definitely changes our hearts. I think once we have those relationships and begin to understand how um, not only our uh, is injustice happening kind of on a, on a personal level, sometimes in our societies, as, as uh, Jim was mentioning the story of the gentleman in Tempe who's being threatened by his neighbor. But then we also begin to understand systemic issues uh, that oppress people who are different than us. And, and as we begin to understand some of those justice issues, um, I believe, as we're following Jesus, we start to lean into how we can get involved in some of those issues. And so with the Evangelical Immigration Table, um, our end goal for people, it, you know, there's, there's opportunities to get involved all along the way, but our end goal is uh, to, to advocate on the behalf of immigrants for better immigration laws in our country because we find that a lot of our outdated laws keep people in situations where they're stuck, keep people from flourishing. And so, um, again, if you want more information, you have the, the little flyer on your table, and there's more at the back table on how to get involved. Several of you in this room have been involved. You've come with us to Washington, D.C. to meet with legislators. You've met with members of Congress here in town. Um, those are actions, direct actions that we can take on behalf of our neighbors that really uh, create a better society f for all of us. Um, so I think, you know, there are a lot of different opportunities uh, and ways to, to really engage folks. Again, like I mentioned earlier, providing legal services. This is a great need in our community. Um, there aren't enough affordable um, legal providers for immigrants and refugees in our community. There are a few doing great work, including Catholic Charities and Friendly House and some others, um, and a few churches who have jumped in like ours did, but there definitely need to be more uh, getting engaged in that way. And then, you know, all the other services that are, that are needed by immigrants and refugees, teaching English is a great way to build relationships with refugees and immigrants in your communities to show the love of Christ. So I think if we are willing to start walking down that path, a lot of opportunities uh, will come our way. It, it takes being willing to, to, start that, to start that journey. And, and there are a number of organizations that you can partner with. When World Relief comes to town, I hope we really partner with them well. Um, one of the things that I'm, I'm going to just encourage us to do is uh, Phoenix Refugee Connections. Um, they have some flyers on the table. Well, instead of like listing every single organization that's engaged in that, I've just asked Phoenix Refugee Connections to just be a place where they can collect all that information. And so, instead of going to like 10 different websites and sorting through everything. So um, they don't know this, but by the end of today, I'm going to ask them to just put links <laughs> and, and, and some explanations of things. Or actually, let's just say tomorrow. Not the end of today. Uh, but I think that that would be a great front door. As I've talked with pastors and people in this room, they say one of the big challenges that they have is that there are a ton of organizations that are always coming at them and telling them about different opportunities. And it's hard to, to sort through and, and know what a good front door is. So um, using the, 
the power of the mic right now. We're going to make Phoenix Refugee Connection that front door. Um, one question I wanted to ask Adam is, um, I, want to, I want to flip that, okay? So this is how churches could get involved and be helpful. I want you to imagine if you were to design a program or a church or a church engagement strategy that would be absolutely awful and would do more harm than good, what would it look like? Ooh, fun. Um, Well, I think it would look like a church going at it alone. Uh, That would be one component of a church trying to say, we're going to do this uh, on our own and... um, For our own, you know, edification, I think another aspect of it would be um, that there there would be a focus on uh, proselytizing instead of evangelism. So trying to coerce people into uh, kingdom life rather than showing the the fruits of kingdom life and really making um, a decision for Christ a prerequisite for our help and our concern. Uh, I think that would be terrible. Um, I think... A negative church engagement structure would, would also really um, focus on being very shallow in their interactions with people. Matt mentioned yesterday uh, working with refugees for the sake of the selfie uh, and not really playing the long game with the people that, that we're trying to serve. So really walking with them through, through the painful times, not just meeting them at the airport. And it's very exciting because they're excited to be in America, but... Are we following with that family? Are we helping their children with tutoring and, and those sorts of needs? Um, I'm trying to think of some other negative things. It's probably good that they're it's, not just on the top yeah, of your head. You know, <laughs> not something I think about every day. That's good. The um, w- One thing I would say to comment on the difference between evangelism and proselytism is uh, this is this is huge. Actually, Matthew, you mentioned a quote from uh, Stott yesterday and how he defined those things. Would you give us the, the definition and what the difference is? Yeah, I mean, I think the way John Stott describes proselytism is as unworthy witness. Mm-hmm. So whenever our, our means or our methods are, or our message are unworthy of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at World Relief, we do see a very important distinction there. Um, and that's not just because we do work with the State Department and we're not allowed to do proselytism, but frankly, our missiology doesn't allow us to do proselytism. Because proselytism is when you're tricking someone into praying a prayer to receive a service or pressuring them in some way in, you know, into converting, which isn't going to be a genuine conversion of faith in any case. Um, but we really see this as a real... We, that said, we do believe in evangelism. We believe in being a witness to who Jesus is. We view people holistically. And one of, their, one of the things we want them to have is a relationship with Jesus. Uh, but we find that very often comes in that context of a relationship where when you are the team from a local church who's met this family at the airport who has walked with them not on a, you know not to show up once but been there day in and day out or at least several times a week over the course of months and you've become their good friends in this new country it's rare that that muslim family or hindu family or atheist family isn't at some point going to ask the question of so why were you at the airport, and why have you befriended us? And we get to, as First Peter 3 says, to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks us for the hope that's within us. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that over and over and over again in different refugee communities, working with different local churches around the United States and, and elsewhere in the world. Frankly, I think um, other parts of the world might be doing a better job of this than the United States. The church mm-hmm. sees this more instinctively of, of course, we should be welcoming refugees. Like, yeah. Jesus was a refugee. You know, like, this is obvious. Um, 
but I think it is a really important distinction um, that, that we have. To, we spent some time with training volunteers to, to kind of work through what is the distinction there. Yeah, that's, that's really good. And just to tell a story about how this uh, fleshes out, um, is, are any Missio Day folks in the room? Chris Gonzalez in here? He was, oh, yeah, he, he walked out. I just saw him earlier. But he, um, at Missio Day, they had uh, a community that basically came around a friend that they met from Afghanistan and for many years basically said, you're, you're a friend, you're our community. Uh, whether or not you walk with Christ, we are still going to you know, befriend you and pour our lives out for you and do life with you and share meals and be roommates and all of these things. And for about uh, five years, uh, it was interesting. I've been praying about for like four things for five years. That was one of them. World Relief coming here in East Valley is another one. But this guy, uh, he, he one day, a, a few, like six months ago, he called and said, hey, I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you. And eventually we connected and he, we talked and he said, hey, I wanted to tell you something. Um, pick up your phone next time. <laughs> And he basically told me that he had a dream of Jesus. And Jesus said that he is his uh, good shepherd and that he is the son of God and invited him to follow him. And he received Christ. And he's, as he, he received the Christ that he saw dramatized in the life of these friends who came around him. And uh, a few weeks later, he actually was, uh, he became a citizen. And they select a few people to tell their story um, at the citizenship hearing. So people from all over the world, from all, from nations where there's very little witness are in this room. And he stands up and he says, when I went as, was in Afghanistan, I was a shepherd. And it took having to go all around the world and land in America where I can't find any shepherds to come meet the, the true shepherd, Jesus, and inviting the people in the room to, to get to know him. And it was pretty powerful and profound. And I think that's what rich evangelism looks like. He heard the good news, he saw the good news, and then God worked in his heart. Um, Matthew, I want to do a, a quick, like, rapid-fire round with you as, as we have these big questions. This will be kind of our last question before we open it up a bit. Um, there are these big themes that we see in Scripture. And I want to name them, and then you tell me how serving refugees connects to these things. So the first one is caring for the poor. How is walking with refugees uh, obeying the Bible's call to care for the poor? Yeah, unfortunately, refugees, when they get to this country, are almost always poor in a U.S. context. I mean, they come, they've left almost everything behind, even those who may have had a lot where they came from. Some came from situations of of extreme poverty in their home country. Others were wealthy in their home country. They might bring a doctorate degree with them, but it's probably not going to do very much for them here, at least not, for the first, not until they've learned English really well and you know, there's credentialing things. So they're vulnerable. And it's like Mark said, that we see in the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, it's when God talks about the most vulnerable, it's often the, the orphan, the widow, and the, the foreigner, the immigrant, the sojourner, the stranger. Um, so there's that opportunity for us in the United States today as well. That's great. The second one is uh, pursuing justice. Yeah, and again, I think that speaks to what Adam mentioned in terms of, I think of justice as it allows us to take that love of our neighbor and then apply that on a systemic level. So to paraphrase Martin Luther King Jr., at one point he said, of course, if you're walking down the road and you see the guy beat up on the side of the road to Jericho, you help him out. That's loving your neighbor. But if the next day someone else is beat up on the side of the road to Jericho, or the next day someone else is beat up on the side of the road to Jericho, 
at a certain point, loving your neighbor has to ask the question of what's wrong with this road. And that's where we get into those issues of systemic justice, and where you know, our, we are really passionate about welcoming refugees. And, well, frankly, our ability to do that is limited by the U.S. government's position on if we're going to welcome refugees in. And the news this morning was an idea that maybe we should, that by some members of Congress, that would, to insert a ban on Syrian refugees being resettled to the United States into a budget resolution. So basically force a government shutdown over if Syrian refugees are allowed in the United States or not. And just to be clear, we're talking about 11,000 Syrian refugees out of 5 million. And no one is talking about all the refugees come here. Yeah. Um, it's a very small number, actually. But um, that's where, you know, like Adam said, we can engage in some of those structural issues, not in a partisan way, not by, you know, we're very clear at World Relief, we're not jumping on any political party's bandwagon. But we do want both Republicans and Democrats and independents and everyone else to uh, be challenged to allow biblical principles to speak into that. So that's one thing the Evangelical Migration Table has done. World Relief has been a part of that. Um, you can see some of their principles on that card that Adam put on the table. Um, and if, as a pastor, you can affirm that on the little response card that's there, um, among other ways to say, hey, I'd like to be involved. That's one very simple way to, I think, speak out in a very small way for justice. How about the Great Commission? Yeah, I mean, we're told in Matthew 28 to go make disciples of all nations, and certainly we should be, we can and should do that by sending people to other parts of the world, but we've missed something really profound if we don't notice that the nations have come here mm. to a country with basically total religious liberty. Um, so we're free to share our faith, and people are free to receive it or to reject it. Um, that's not the case in, most, in many of the countries that refugees are fleeing from. I mean, I've seen that in my community, um, where I lived for about eight years. There's a guy from Somalia. His name's Abdi. Abdi, like almost everyone from Somalia, is a Muslim. And he came to his English teacher, Josh, who's one of my best friends and works with World Relief in our neighborhood. We've lived in this neighborhood for, for a long time. Abdi came to us and said, hey, you know, in my refugee camp in Ethiopia, I heard about this movie. It's called The Jesus Film. Like, can you get me that in my language? Abdi wants to know more about who Jesus is. We're not the great evangelists at his door, you know, but, um, but he's coming to us to ask those questions, and because he knows that we are followers of Jesus. And we've seen that circumstance in different scenarios with people from countries that we would think of as almost entirely unreached. You know, there's a very, very small percentage of people who are followers of Jesus in Somalia or in any number of other countries that refugees are coming from. And the, the final one is uh, showing solidarity with the persecuted church. Yeah, I pre, I'm, that's almost the flip side to the, the evangelistic opportunity. I think with refugees in particular right now, if you just watch the news coverage, where, what country do you suppose most refugees are coming from? Syria, that's like in the news, right? And there's a great opportunity to welcome Syrians, most of whom are Muslims. But it's not the number one country of origin for refugees in the United States. That's been Burma for the last, most of the last 10 years. Hmm. And 70% of those Burmese refugees are Karen or Kareni or Chin ethnic minorities who are almost entirely Baptist or Anglican or Catholic Christians. Mm -hmm. And that's particularly why they've been forced out of their country, because they are fleeing that persecution from their government. Uh, I've had some of those neighbors come to my door to make sure I know about Jesus. And frankly, I've got a lot to learn about following Jesus from someone who has fled their home, fleeing violence because mm -hmm. of their commitment to, walk, to walking with Jesus. And that's true even, I mean, if you look at refugees from the Middle East who are settled in the United States, yes, most of them are Muslim, but 39% are Christians of some sort or another. I mean, it's a unique opportunity to stand with the persecuted church. And I just, it's the scenario you threw out early on. If I was forced to flee my home because I'm following Jesus and I ended up in some foreign airport or some border somewhere, I would hope that someone from a local church would be there to welcome me, to grieve with me what had been lost and to help rebuild my life. And we have that opportunity 
Um, it's, you don't have very many of those opportunities on the east side yet, but that will happen soon. That's where we get settled there. It's happening more in the west and in the center of the city through other resettlement agencies already. Um, and through others who come as immigrants, maybe don't come through the official refugee resettlement channels, but equally are fleeing, you know, as Christians. Yeah. And, and one thing I love about what you said uh, with that is the uh, being received, not just as um, a project or a some nice thing that you have to do for someone lesser than you, but receiving as family, as a part of the church. Yeah. Um, Mark, would you close and just tell us about, a little bit about what that would look like to in our churches, not just, not just to uh, uh, welcome as a nice thing, but as a brother, as a friend, as with real rich relationship. Yeah, sure. It's, um, I mean, it's, it's complicated, uh, Jim, uh, because uh, our expectations can be off kilter too sometimes. Uh, for example, if, if a church uh, says, you know what, we're going to sponsor, we're going to be a co-sponsor for a refugee, and perhaps they would, sponsor, they would um, partner with you guys, World Relief, and that would mean that, that this church has the opportunity to provide housing and um, to just kind of facilitate our English second language teaching. Uh, it would be a chance to um, help them get the refugee family get social security and, and get the help that they need, enroll in schooling, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's a lot of time spent there. There's a lot of, lot of car trips, a lot of filling out forms, a lot of relationships, a lot of meals. Uh, and and this, is, this is wonderful. And, and we know that when a refugee family, I, I mean, there's almost like there's three crises, isn't there? There's the, there's the terrible conflict that they fled in the first place. Mm-hmm. And then there's the crisis often of the refugee camp the limbo period, but then we know now that resettlement itself is a third crisis, mm-hmm. and and what do we what would we need? Right, we we would need family, we would need friends, we would people need people who are going to sh- share life with us, mm-hmm. and so it's just it's doing that time, hey, and it's it's just it's it's embracing this invitation, this opportunity to be family and to be blessed. Mm-hmm. But you know, um, the other side to it is that our expectations um, have to be right, yeah. that uh, our refugee friends probably won't join our church, yeah. even though we might think that they would. Uh, you know, we think to ourselves, ah, oh, I think they'd go very well in the 5 p.m. service. Mm-hmm. But, but they're probably going to find a church that, that is, has people from the country, their country of origin. And we, we might even think, you know, uh, uh, dad's going to get a job and, uh, and the kids are all going to go to school. They're going to thrive. And to be sure, that's what we hope, and, and it might happen, but it might not happen. Mm-hmm. So we've got to just, um, we just got to be Christ, and we just got to be ready, not just to transform and to see people transformed, but we've really just got to take a step down and be ready to trans- be transformed ourselves. Yeah. So it's 102, and I want to uh, go ahead and wrap up now. Um, one thing I think that's really important, since, since we're out of time, uh, I'm going to land it now. But I would strongly encourage that you go connect with Nathan Lundgren, that back table there. Uh, talk, connect with him about world relief um, and them coming to town. Um, the other thing is I would encourage you to uh, just continue these conversations amongst yourself. Um, next month, I'll tell you the theme of the, the surge lunches. We're going to give you a break, okay? We've been covering really weighty heavy issues. Now, next month, we're, we're essentially going to talk about rest and Sabbath in the midst of a conflicted world. Because I know a lot of folks in here, you get the weight of the news hitting like Friday, right as you're about to take a weekend, and it sits with you. And, and um, 
and really we want to talk a little bit about Sabbath and rest and um, what does it look like to be sustained by God through the midst of this very conflicted world and challenging things we're going through. Josh Butler, who is, um, he wrote, recently wrote a book called Pursuing God. He'll be the speaker. He'll be here. And uh, let me uh, close us in prayer. Father, we're thankful for, um, we're thankful for the community that we have um, in this room and the, the reality that, um, that this is your world. This is your city. It belongs to you. All of these churches belong to you. And uh, that you are the Lord. Father, you are our Father. And that we are here as brothers and sisters. We've been received with tremendous hospitality. And God, in, as we've been received sacrificially in Christ, we ask that you would show us how we can receive others sacrificially in the, the ways of the kingdom. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, one more announcement really quick. Um, so September, we have a slide. Could you guys um, put the slide up? We have Latasha Morrison coming September... 23rd. Um, you can get more information on our Facebook page or our website. But she is she leads a group called Be the Bridge to Racial Unity. So um, this is a time to help get better equipped for leading your congregations through um, some of the controversial moments that we've had, um, not some, many of the controversy and tension happening um, around race. And so the morning time is for pastors and church leaders. So, so many of you who've already maybe read Divided by Faith, or you're a little bit into this discussion and you want to go deeper, um, the evening one is going to be for people within your church who maybe are passionate about this issue, but like beyond maybe posting on Facebook, they haven't really been able to engage. And so um, part of this is just an, kind of a continuation from our last surge launch of continuing to say, how do we lead our congregations through controversy? How do we equip people um, to engage in these very um, difficult ways to be reconcilers and to be part of building bridges of unity. And so this will be another um, event, so you guys can register for that. And then the last thing before you guys talk, hang out and talk as long as you want, um, but before we close out, is this lunch is really meant to be a springboard um, for the rest of the month. So we just want to encourage you to, one, um, have make a commitment to find another pastor in your area that you don't currently know, even better if they're from a different uh, network or tribe of churches than you are, um, and ask them for coffee or lunch, get to know them, ask them how they came to love Jesus and why they're in ministry and about what, what their church is all about. Um, and two, if you don't know someone here, um, you know, to, to take some time to connect with someone that you don't know and find ways in which you can connect outside of here. So thank you guys so much for your time. Oh, sorry. This is going to be at Redemption Tempe. So this is just the, the brief flyer. You can get all the information on the website. And um, if you're on our mailing list, you'll get that mailed out to you this week as well. Thanks.